Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, July 11th, 2020. Right now it is Thursday morning. Once again, we have our friend Truthvids here with us to address Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seedline Doctrine? Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. This program is subtitled, the Devil as a Psychobabbler, and this is part 22 of our series. Hello, Truthvids. Thank you once again for being here. Hey, Bill. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I thought first off we should just briefly mention that psychology is all Jewish. It's a Jewish invention. Um, some people try to argue that it comes from Greeks and Greek philosophers, but that's not really true. Um, I just had a really quick brief description I found, and that was around the 17th century, a French philosopher, René Descartes, introduced the idea of dualism, which asserted that the mind and body were two entities that interact to form the human experience. And right there, he's removing the spirit of Yahweh, and you can see immediately that it's just the two aspects, you know, that all bastards have. They don't have the spirit of Yahweh. So immediately you can see that it's removing God from the equation and that the root of the philosophy is all wrong. Right, Bill? Well, well right. And, and our scriptures tell us that there's a spirit of God within us that urges us to do good while we have the heart of man, which is fleshly and lustful, which draws us into sin it, if we if we give in to that but if we stay in the spirit as christians and, and even before christ if people obeyed the spirit of the law they wouldn't go off into sin that they would that they would avoid sin so it, it's um we all have our our own personality but our primary characteristics are, are from our genetic traits that they're born into us that's why we create yeah civilization. And group all races together sorry right i, I was going to say that's why we create civilization wherever we go and and why africans create africa wherever they go wherever they go and an anti-civilization you were saying. Yeah, and you just can't compare us to them at all. That there's no logical way or higher thinking. And also the idea that the, you know, the Bible is old and outdated. And, you know, now that we're wiser and smarter and we can invent laws that are relative that can outdo the Bible is all foolishness. Right. Psychology is is just a way to get us to think that our characteristic traits and our tendencies in behavioral um, patterns are two separate things. And they basically aren't. They're not. You know a bastard by its works, by its fruits. Eventually, it, even if um, it's difficult to tell somebody is a bastard or a Jew, 
eventually it's going to come out in, in their behavioral characteristics and, and they're going to betray themselves. That's, that's the way it always works. That's the way it's worked all throughout history. Once you understand that the, um, once you understand the scripture and, and what the word of God says about behavior and characteristics, you'll understand that. And, and no, not all men are perfect, but that there are men who generally seek always to do good and care about their kindred people. And then there are bastards who, who seek only to gain for themselves and, and would kill their brother in order to do that, as Cain killed Abel. Our, our first example, yes, psychology wants to separate us from our God and his will and his understanding. And make us all the same and, and attribute other reasons to our behavior. It's Jewish to the core. It's concepts. It's humanism. In chapter five of his book, Weissman had attempted to smear our Christian identity profession with claims that it came from witchcraft, from Gnosticism, from Freemasonry, the Talmud, the Kabbalah anything but scripture, right? <laughs> but of course, all of these were actually Jewish or heavily influenced by Jews. So he could have simply claimed that we got it from Jews, saved himself a lot of time and paper. However, we have proven throughout the series that our profession does indeed come from scripture. And we have cited many Christian and non-Jewish sources to support it, which are far older than these sources cited in Weissman's allegations. Therefore, all of these Jewish or Jewish-influenced philosophies actually began with basic truths and perverted those truths into lies. And as we also saw, their resulting lies, what is really taught in the Kabbalah and Freemasonry and Gnosticism, their resulting lies are not at all similar to what we believe and demonstrate that the Bible teaches. Now Weissman attempts to discredit us with another plainly Jewish tactic, which is a so-called psychological study. Since he denies the truth of scripture and even goes so far as to state that Christ was merely following along with Persian and Babylonian dualism, as well as reducing God incarnate to the level of a common slanderer, which he did in his last two chapters, we must imagine other and wicked reasons for the existence of our doctrine, just like he claimed that there were other and wicked sources from which it originated. So, here Charles Weissman is certainly playing the role of a devil, which is a false accuser. The reason why, the only reason why we believe two seed line is basically because that's what the scripture teaches. And we can see that the scripture is correct by observing the history of the world. It's that simple. So now we shall present our criticism of chapter six, this final chapter of Charles Weissman's book, 
what about the seed line doctrine? And it is titled, Why the Seed Line Doctrine Exists. Here in this chapter, Weissman will admit and even prove many of the elements of our two seed line belief, even while denying the necessary conclusions and the overall position. Weissman begins at the top of page 50 of his book under the subtitle, A Psychological Study. He says, whenever we examine a doctrine, we should try to ascertain why it exists or what is the motive behind the doctrine. In other words, why do people believe or not believe in something? Is it because of faith or is it because of preconditioning, social pressure, emotional appeal, self-righteousness, monetary security, or false piety? And I would say that Weissman's rejection of two seed line helped secure his own monetary security, right? Weissman goes on to say, thus the question of why a doctrine exists is a subject of psychology. The study dealing with the mind and with mental and emotional processes, it helps us understand human nature and what causes the mind and heart to act the way they do. And, and of course, all of this is useless rhetoric. Anyone who denies the actual reasons why something exists can always make up a list of excuses of why they think it exists. But that does not mean that any of it is true. This is the same manner by which Jewish critics had undermined Christianity itself among the academics of the last two centuries Seeing Jesus merely as some renegade Jew who got angry and started his own cult. And that's what the Jews of today say about Christ. They want us to believe he was a Jew. And then he was just an angry Jew that started his own cult because he couldn't get along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Weissman also degrades Christ to that level, where he claimed that Christ was merely name-calling his enemies rather than speaking the truth, and following along with Persian and Babylonian dualism to account for their opposition to him. Weissman did that in the last two chapters of his book. That's what he did. So he basically is using this same psychological tactic against Jesus Christ without coming out and saying that directly. Now, Weissman continues by offering yeah, scripture. He, I'm sorry, go on. Sorry. I was going to say he's also kind of implying that maybe because we're facing financial hardship or have had a rough life, we're looking for someone to blame and we're, we're just putting it all on the poor Jews out there. Well, right, but that's not true at all. I mean, we can, we can see how the Jews have operated as a group throughout history, and we can document what we say about them. But we don't have to document it. The Jews themselves documented it. <laughs> they documented it. They basically left it right in front of our faces. The bottom line is... Yeah, they boast about it. That the scripture tells us 
that they would do that. The scripture tells us what would happen. And very often it tells us very explicitly how they would act and what they do. Once you understand two seed line, you can't see it until you understand two seed line. For instance, in the Revelation in chapter 13, it speaks of a beast. And everybody's going to worship this beast. And, and you read that the dragon gives its power to the beast. And once you understand the nature of the beast, that the beasts of the Revelation are world empires, world rulers. And once you understand that the Jewish-controlled central banks are behind those world, rule, world rulers, that they prop up those governments and, and basically enable them to do the things that they, that they do and to rule over us as they do, well, then you understand how the Bible tells us explicitly how these Jews would act. It, it's, it's intertwined. Our understanding is intertwined. It can't be separated from all of Scripture and all of history. And it explains history very well. Weissman is in denial. He's in complete denial. I mean, sure, white men can sin. And, and sure, white men can sell their souls to the devil. Those white men are sitting in the offices in universities teaching the devil's doctrines. And, and in New York City brokerage houses doing the devil's deeds. <laughs> I mean, yes, white men can sin. And white men can sin in, in more obvious and cruder ways. But their general behavioral characteristics are not sinful, and, and they do not incline to sin unless they're, they're coaxed away by their own greed and lust. If we are poor, we have to define poor. If we're bitter because we're poor, we must define poor. Do we struggle for um, our daily bread? And, and we blame the Jews for that. I don't think that anybody who is homeless and struggles for his daily bread blames Jews. I, I don't know anybody. I don't know one person that does that. Usually when they're, that they're poor and struggling, it's because of their own drunkenness, their own broken families, their own um, refusal to conform to a schedule so that they could show a prospective employer that they're going to show up for work every morning. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for poverty. And I don't think anybody in 2C line blames Jews for their own um, personal predicament. I don't know anybody. But yes, I've heard the stories. I've heard that. Um, used as an excuse by which to dismiss us. And it shouldn't be an excuse. Weissman continues by offering scripture itself as a product of psychological analysis. He says, the Bible has much to tell us about psychology. It discusses the corrupt inner nature of man, the various virtues and vices people can have, and why they have them and tells us 
of the human heart and mind and how they function. The Bible tells us that people tend to believe something because it appeals to their inner nature, not because of sound reasoning on the matter. And that that's, it's also very subjective, right? This is all subjective trash. The Bible may tell us something that can be squeezed into what the wisdom of men calls psychology. But modern psychology has little care for the Bible or to properly distinguish the fleshly and spiritual aspects of men. The Bible would not care for modern psychology. The God of the Bible would not care one bit for psychology. So now Weissman cites three passages of scripture, which are often used to denounce many things which men at one time or another disagree with or have seen as heresies. And, and so, so this is just a, this is also just a tactic. It's subjective and it's not necessarily true. And the first of those scriptures is Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31. So this is picking, you know, just certain verses that can kind of broadly speak of anything. Yeah, and you need right. to know the entire context. Absolutely. And, and the, the, yeah, you know, the Baptists do the same thing. A, a devout Baptist or a devout Catholic, if you don't follow the Pope and worship the Pope, a devout Catholic can quote Jeremiah 531 in reference to you. A devout Baptist, if you don't agree with his rapture doctrine, can quote Jeremiah 531 in reference to you. So what does this mean? It means nothing. Jeremiah 531 says, The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. That's all it says by itself. You could apply that to anything, to any disagreement in Scripture. You could label, smear somebody with this verse. It means nothing. What were the prophets prophesying falsely? If we read that passage in Jeremiah chapter 5, were they not in favor of international trade, with pursuing peace with aliens, with the race mixing in Judah, which is described in Jeremiah chapter 2, with the oppression by which certain of the people of Jerusalem were enriching themselves, as even many of their own countrymen were poor and oppressed? How does this relate to our two-seed line profession? Jeremiah 531 can be used to sneer anybody, taken out of context, put it in its context, and it's referring to very specific deeds of very specific people. So why did Weissman pick that verse? He picked it as a slander. It's the same with 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, which he next quotes. And he says, But a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, wanting to have their ears tickled. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables. Now, this is another passage that anybody of any Christian profession can use against anybody else that doesn't agree with them. But what's it really saying? Let's read a larger portion of that passage from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Timothy 
Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Paul speaking to Timothy. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own loss shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But now watch in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry." So is Weissman guilty of what Paul told Timothy to watch for when he degraded Yahshua Christ to the level of a slanderer, or when he asserted that Christ was following Babylonian and Persian paganism? Is it Weissman himself who is guilty of these things? How are we guilty of these things because we pretend to understand what these scriptures teaching from Genesis to Revelation? And we are only getting our belief from the scripture. We're not getting it from the Talmud or the Kabbalah, as Weissman claimed. So it's actually Weissman who is guilty of these things. And next he cites Isaiah chapter 30, verses 9 and 10. And he leaves out, uh, he, he, once again, he's picking words out of scripture that, that he wants to use as a weapon and not in their original context. So he leaves a, a big ellipsis, right? This is a rebellious people, and, and he skips the rest of verse 9, which say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy unto us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophecy deceits. So is two seed lines something smooth? which is something that's easy to accept, right? Something smooth is something that's agreeable to the greater number of people that they want to hear. That's what something smooth is. Is two seed lines something smooth? Or is it something that's very difficult to accept and has um, harsh consequences as to how one views the world once it's accepted, two C line is not smooth. Christ himself said that the tares were planted by the devil, that they were plants that his father did not plant. So is the teaching that there are genetically wicked people in the world actually deceitful? And if it is, then why is it rejected everywhere rather than being popular? Or else why did Christ call, why did Christ himself call his adversaries the offspring generation. That word means offspring, the offspring of vipers. Being called the offspring of vipers, is that not identifying the allegorical likening to vipers as a genetic condition? Or was Jesus a bad man because he said such things about the parents of his adversaries? whom he probably had never even met. Was Jesus merely prophesying deceits? 
The fact that very few people can accept it does not by itself make it true, but it does show that it is not smooth, which is something that is easy to accept and pleasurable to hear. So what was Isaiah yeah, the re- race issue is the, the hardest thing to discuss, right? Absolutely. It's re- really difficult. And in many ways, only people who have suffered the consequences truly can see it. That's generally you know, uh, true. They've suffered harm from living amongst these other races. And only then do they get the eyes that see. That's generally true. Very few of my listeners um, had been fortunate enough to have had their eyes opened from the outside looking in. What was Isaiah really referring to in that passage? He was warning the children of Israel that they would be defeated and taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And the people were listening to prophets who deceived them by telling them that an alliance with Egypt would save them. Here Weissman had conveniently omitted part of verse 9. And it says in its entirety that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord. But we embrace the law. So this passage does not describe us. Weissman has therefore taken all three of these passages out of their context and applied them to us. And he is guilty of deceit. Any such deceiver can take passages like these out of context and smear whomever does not agree with his own pet agenda. But that doesn't make it true. So these passages prove nothing for Weissman. It's just rhetoric. Rhetoric doesn't prove anything by itself. The Bible has, and I'm continuing with Weissman on page 51, I'm sorry. The Bible has many examples showing how people will follow, believe, or adopt a concept or doctrine because of its appeal to their personal values or inner nature. Truth and the word of God will be rejected when such doctrines are presented. And this is exactly what Weissman is doing. In the Bible, The Bible itself has many examples. That's what Weissman says, right? In the Bible, these false concepts never come, of which the Bible makes examples, right? These false concepts never come from the Word of God itself, ever. In the Old Testament, they come from the pagan religions. In the New Testament, they come from the unbiblical so-called Traditions of the Elders, which is also the leaven of the Pharisees, or from the vain philosophies of men. But we actually believe the Word of God. And throughout our exposition of Weissman's book, we have explained why we believe it as we do. Yet Weissman, by his own admission, does not believe the word of God, as he himself had claimed that Yahshua Christ was only following paganism and is a mere slanderer. And, and I keep driving those two points home because that's what Weissman did 
And that shows that Weissman is not a Christian. He is only engaging in subterfuge, even commenting on identity Christianity. He doesn't really believe so, Bill, Christ. So, um, Oh, sorry. I was just going to say this next bit. I was astonished when I read it. I had to read it five times just to make sure that I was reading what he said. He just shows you they absolutely doesn't believe in Christ or the Bible at all. Right. I agree. That there is um, there was a lot of dispute among early identity Christians. When I say early in this sense, I mean identity Christians of the um, 1970s, 80s, and 90s, especially the followers of Sheldon Emery, and, and who believed that the flesh was the devil. Everybody's flesh, all flesh, was the devil. <laughs> and, and that's what he believed. And that's what Weissman believes, but he doesn't, and he's alluded to that a few times in this book. But he hasn't come out and said it plainly. So Sheldon Emery did. And, and Sheldon Emery picked up that rather late in his life, that doctrine. He didn't have it at the beginning. The, um, these identity Christians, and Mark Downey was one of them. And he was an early follower of Sheldon Emery. And they believed that there was such a thing as soul sleep, that your spirit slept in the ground, literally, until you would be resurrected. And that's based on a, to me, a simplistic reading of one of a couple of passages in the Old Testament. And Weissman cites those passages here. And hopefully we shall see that he's wrong, that, that that's not what these passages are really saying at all. So you're right, he, basic, he basically denies primary tenets of Christianity, not of two seed line, but of, of mainstream Christianity doesn't even believe what he's about to say. He says many popular Christian yeah, doctrines. Yeah, I think the fact that he doesn't, a hundred percent commit to anything it shows that he's a deceiver whilst other you know at white christians they always try and form a basis so that they understand but weissman's not interested in that he's just trying to discredit two seed line right without putting a proper argument just a bit of this a bit of that just to discredit it right but like this passage that i'm about to read and like certain things that he said in the other chapters it, it proves that he is not a Christian. Charles Weissman thought just like a Jew thinks. He's not a Christian in any sense of the word. And, and it's a shame that so many identity Christians read Weissman's book and didn't realize that Weissman is not a Christian. So he continues, and we're still on page 51, he continues under the pretense that his premise is correct, which it is not. And he says, many popular Christian doctrines exist for this reason. The premise that he created in citing those three passages, which were all out of, out of context, right? And he says, for instance, 
The popular doctrine that people go to heaven when they die has no scriptural foundation. What the Bible does say is that in death, man and beast are the same. They both rot in the ground and return to dust and possess no state consciousness. And he's citing Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 38 verse 18. And he goes on to say, this truth, however, is not appealing to our nature. Thus, we accept the fable that we go to heaven to be with Jesus and sit in the clouds because of its greater appeal. So, here we must pause, and, and here we must actually take a, a long pause, right? Yeah, well. It is not what the Bible says. It is only what Weissman chose to read. And I'm going to cite these passages. And first here is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. I will read 18 to 20. Weissman only cited 19 and 20. And this is Solomon who wrote Ecclesiastes. And if you read Ecclesiastes, Solomon gave himself to mirth, to partying, as we call it today, right? And to drunkenness. And he gave himself into sin in order to test them, as he claims in the book. And he repents in the end. There's no doubt. There's a... Um, a pretty in-depth commentary on Ecclesiastes, which I did just a couple of years ago. Let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. Our fleshly nature, we are beasts. We have to admit that. That's our fleshly nature. But we're guided by a spirit, and Weissman is not considering that spirit. For that which be befalls the sons of men befalls beasts, even one thing befalls them. As one dies, so dieth the other. Yeah, they have all one breath. In other words, like a beast dies, a man will die. So that man has no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go unto one place. All are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knows the spirit of a man that goes upward, and the spirit of a beast that goes downward to the earth? Now, I didn't put it into my notes, but Weissman also cited Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5. And I'm going to read verses 4 and 5. In fact, I'm going to read verses 3, 4, and 5. Or I'm going to read from verse 2. Let's get the full context of this, right? I'm going to read from verse 2. But when I'm done, I'm going to go back and read verse 1. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean, and to the unclean, to him that sacrifices, and to him that sacrifices not. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he that swears, as he that fears an oath, he that refuses to make an oath. 
This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yeah, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. And now the verse that Weissman cites, because he wants you to read it by, by itself, right? For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Now, what context did Solomon say this in? And let's go back and read Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1. For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knows either love or hatred by all that is before them. And then he goes into his um, comparison that, that men, good or bad, both have to suffer death. And that the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. We have demonstrated in our commentary on Ecclesiastes, presented here in early 2018, that Solomon had employed cynicism, sarcasm, and irony throughout his work because, as he had frequently declared, all is vanity. But in the end, he found that even vanity is vanity. As he proclaimed in the last chapter, let us hear, this is the very end of his work, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his judgments, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Now, saying that, Solomon certainly must have understood that the spirit of man goeth upward, or there would be no purpose in God's bringing every work into judgment, and there would be no reward for the man who kept his commandments, which Solomon said he alluded to in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, chapter nine verse 1, but Weissman chooses to ignore that. He chooses to ignore the entire purpose of Ecclesiastes, which is summed up in its last few verses and in its first few. And that's because Solomon had also professed in Ecclesiastes, in the beginning chapters, that God subjected man to vanity for a greater purpose. And Paul of Tarsus was actually drawing on that same concept, first expressed by Solomon. Well, actually, it's first expressed in, in, the Revela in, in Genesis itself, in the opening chapters of Genesis. But it's first expressed in this manner by Solomon in the opening chapters of Ecclesiastes, that God subjected man to vanity in order to try him. 
Well, if you're tried, and, and Paul repeats that in Romans chapter 8. So if you're subjected to vanity for a particular purpose so that God may try you, and if there is a reward in keeping his commandments, which we see at the end of Ecclesiastes that Solomon professes, then where are you when you die? Are you nothing? What's the purpose? There's no purpose. So before we conclude, we're going to examine the passage which Weissman cited from Isaiah chapter 38, which represents the words of King Hezekiah of Judah. O Lord, this is verse 16. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. So wilt thou recover me and make me to live? Hezekiah is repentant, he's sick, and he wants to live. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. For the grave cannot praise thee, death cannot celebrate thee. They that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. The living, the living, he shall praise thee as I do this day. The father to the children shall make known thy truth. Now, does this establish Weissman's claim that there is no life or consciousness after death? It says that the grave and death do not praise or celebrate God, but that the living do praise him. In Matthew chapter 22, we read the words of Christ, which Weissman has already admitted that he did not believe, where Christ said, But... As touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. These are the words of Christ. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. The Jews did not believe Christ, where he professed that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were living and were not dead. But neither does Weissman. Weissman doesn't believe Christ either. In John chapter 8, Christ said to his adversaries, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, I know that the Sheldon Emery apologists, such as Mark Downey, would refute the plain meaning of that. They would claim that Abraham saw it ahead of time, that he was only looking forward to it. But if that's true, then Abraham didn't really see it. When we accept the plain meaning of this passage, we see that Abraham was indeed living, as Christ had said in Matthew chapter 22. But the Jews didn't believe it. So they respond in that same place in John chapter 8. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and thou hast seen Abraham? In other words, how could Christ say that if he didn't see Abraham? So Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. The Jews also did not believe that Yahshua was the Messiah. 
meaning that he was God incarnate. And he is stating there that he was before Abraham. He existed before Abraham. Only God could say that. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, chapters 3 and 4, the apostle explained that Christ had preached to the spirits of the dead. And because of a mistranslation in the King James Version that I actually despise, it's terrible, I'm going to quote from the Christogenia New Testament from verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Because Christ also suffered once for all errors or sins, the just on behalf of the unjust, in order that he may lead you to Yahweh, or God, indeed dying in the flesh, but being made to live by the Spirit, at which also going, he proclaimed to those spirits in prison, who at one time had been disobedient, when the forbearance of Yahweh awaited in the days of Noah's preparing the vessel, in which a few, that is, eight souls, had been preserved through the water. So here, the spirits in prison were those wicked Adamites who died in the flood of Noah. And we see they really were not dead at all, but were only held in Hades until they could hear the gospel of Christ. So speaking of the sinners of his own time, Peter compared them to these to whom Christ had preached in chapter 4 of his epistle, where he wrote, They shall give an account to him who holds ready to judge the living and the dead. Indeed, for this also, the dead, to the dead, the gospel has been announced, that they may indeed be judged like men in the flesh, but live like Yahweh, like God, in the spirit. That's the words of the Apostle Peter. That's the Christian hope, but that is also what the Old Testament teaches, <clears throat> what it truly teaches, once you understand that in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is giving is presenting his opinions sarcastically because he had taken on himself the attitude of the wicked, the attitude of sinful men in order to teach a lesson. And in the end, we see Solomon inform us that it is important to keep the commandments because your works will be judged after you die. And there is a reward for good works after you die. That's professed at the very end of Ecclesiastes, in its last chapter, at the end of chapter 12. Everything is summed up. That's Solomon's conclusion. Once we see that, then we see the irony and sarcasm throughout Ecclesiastes. You can't be a one-verse Bible wonder. And that's what Weissman's being. He's being a one-verse Bible wonder. Taking one verse and putting it into any context that he chooses, rather than understanding it in its original context. And that's the difference between we who are identity Christians and profess to seed line and denominational Christianity 
and all the people that deny two seed line and, and Christian identity. That's the primary difference between us, the way that we approach the scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul taught just what Solomon had in Ecclesiastes with some elaboration where he wrote, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What was Paul speaking about? Was he speaking about some stone temple in the clouds? No. He was speaking of the spiritual body, the spirit with which the Adamic man is endowed as being immortal. So he continues, For in this we groan, earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. In other words, once you understand Christianity, you want to exist in that immortal, flawless body, that spiritual house in heaven, rather than in this flawed, fleshly lustful body with all its diseases and its sins and discomforts. So Paul continues, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so, if so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. And he's making a reference to what? To Genesis chapter 3. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we should be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. That mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now that is another important Christian concept. Let's read the words of Christ from Matthew chapter 5. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And the word for hell there is not Hades. The word for hell there is Gehenna. And Gehenna simply refers to the fiery trials of this life, that if you sin, if you follow your lust that that right eye caused, and you sin, that you will be punished in this life for your sins. You will suffer the consequences of this life, in this life, for your sins. It has been said, whosoever shall put away his wife let him give her a writing of divorcement. And he goes on and talks about lust. But the important thing here is that if you sin, you're not necessarily going to be put in eternal hellfire in your spirit, but that you are going to suffer the trials in this world for your sins. So, in Matthew chapter 18, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, 
In other words, sin is inevitable. But woe to him, woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offends thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed. In other words, with just one hand or with just one foot. Rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Now, that doesn't mean that if you sin, you're going to be cast into everlasting fire. But it's better to go enter into life with one hand or one foot. When you die, you're not going to hell. You're not going to Hades. When you die, that's the point where you enter into life. So Christians see that when they die, they pass into life. Christ taught this same thing as we see in Matthew chapter 18 that Paul is teaching here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we desire to enter into life. That's what Christians should desire. That doesn't mean that we should kill ourselves because God has a purpose here in this world and we have to face that purpose. So, Paul continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, he has wrought us, he that has wrought us, that has made us, for the selfsame thing is God, who has also given unto us the earnest or deposit of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing this, that while we are at home in the body, in this physical body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, we believe that, we know it. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body, to be absent from this physical body, and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, in other words, we have to fulfill the purpose that he put us here for, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted by him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the same thing Solomon taught, the same thing Christ taught, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that which he had done, whether it be good or bad. So how does Weissman say that we don't have and an existence after this world, if we're Christians, if we're true Christians. How does he say that? I was astonished he admitted that. <laughs> just blew me away. I was like, wow. That's the Jewish understanding of scriptures. That's not Christian. That's what the Jews believe. Yeah, and, and as you said, this all shows you that there's a reason to do good. You know, throughout life, there's... um many decisions that you'll face and you know you can often pick do good which will make your life a bit harder not as comfortable but ultimately there is a point to it because you'll have reward in the end rather than just living for yourself or living for the moment you know which jews and weissmen tend to do absolutely and the other races too that they live for the moment they live to satisfy their immediate desires 
and that's all they live for. And, and they go from seeking one pleasure to seeking another pleasure. And that's how they go through life. So from these scriptures, we see the Christians have a strong reason to believe that they shall be present with God upon their death. But Weissman evidently didn't believe them. He didn't believe these scriptures. The passages he chose in an attempt to refute this concept were taken out of context and he did not understand them. Once again, Charles Weissman has proven that he is not a Christian. So now, without offering any further substantiation for his claims, which he never properly established, he only made claims, it's only rhetoric, and now he turns back to psychology. If we don't understand true human psychology, we are destined to fall into the traps and snares of our lusts, ego, vanity, emotions, and heart, which is deceitful above all things, citing Jeremiah 17.9. So, do we really need to understand psychology in order to keep ourselves free of sin? That's what, that, that's what Weissman is stating here. If we don't understand true human psychology, we're going to sin. Sin is transgression of the law, as the Apostle John wrote in chapter 3 of his first epistle. In Romans chapter 7, Paul of Tarsus explained the struggle which every Adamic man and woman has, the struggle between the fleshly desires and the will of the Spirit, explaining that as long as we hear the law and follow the Spirit, we will be kept from sin and death. Without the law, man does not know sin, but he can still commit sin. And therefore, Paul had also exclaimed, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So in the very first psalm, David had written, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight, his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law does he meditate night and day. However, Weissman is not advocating a need to know the law. Rather, he is advocating a need to know psychology. He insists that we know psychology. Weissman is a psychobabbler. He is no better than a Jew. He proves it. I don't know how that could be denied. Now Weissman concludes this section. Of and this psychology chapter. changes all the time, right? It's, it's not based on an eternal law, so it's just relative. Exactly. And that's why Jews push psychology, because if you read the Talmud, the Talmud is a book of relativism, that it's okay to sin in this particular circumstance. Like if you have, if, if you commit sexual intercourse with a child who is less than three years old, it'll be a virgin again when it gets older. The girl will be, become a virgin again when she gets older. And the Talmud advocates that. The Talmud is an entire book of dispute, and, and I'm referring to the commentaries on the law 
within the Talmud. They are entire books, there's a couple of them, that basically just dispute with the law and insist upon ways to get around the law. And one of those ways is that, well, you could rape a baby, but she has to be under three years old so that she would be a virgin again when she gets older. That's the Jewish mind. That's the diabolical Jewish mind. And it's basically relativism, where it's okay to sin in particular circumstances. That's the essence of relativism. So the law is not constant and stable in the mind of a Jew. He's going to make excuses where he can circumvent it and justify himself and do a lot of disgusting, perverted acts along the way and justify them. Oh, it's okay that I um, had sexual intercourse with that baby. It's okay. It's not a sin. She'll be a virgin again when she gets old. Are you crazy? That's an attitude that's in the Talmud and justified in the Talmud that deserves only one thing, a bullet in the head. And that's, your, that's what your average rabbi believes. That's why they can justify sucking little boys' penises. And it's amazing that the little boys often get herpes and nobody wonders why so many rabbis have herpes. Because they all practice the Talmud. <laughs> That's why they have herpes. So now Weissman concludes this section of his chapter by repeating the slanders of chapter 5 and claiming that psychology can prove them out. But discussing psychology here, he failed to prove them. He says, now why does this satanic seed-lying doctrine exist? After all, if you told some Christian that a certain belief can be found in paganism, Gnosticism, and Judaism, and is embraced in Masonic and Talmudic literature, they would stay away from it. So why then do people believe in the satanic seed-lying doctrine? The reason is to be found by a psychological study of the subject. <laughs> That's Charles Weissman. He's not a Christian. First, we have demonstrated that our belief does not come from witchcraft, Gnosticism, Judaism, Freemasonry, the Talmud, or the Kabbalah. And especially because those things all have fantastic interpretations, fabulous interpretations of the so-called serpent seed that we have never accepted and which makes which themselves those interpretations found in those books which we have proven they themselves make a mockery of scripture but just because a basic concept or entity is mentioned in any of those works does not make it wrong the Masons want to build Solomon's Temple. And that does not mean that the original Solomon's Temple never existed. The Gnostics make caricatures of Cain and of Seth. But that does not mean that Cain or Seth had never existed. The Jews dispute with Moses throughout the Talmud. But that does not mean that Moses did not exist. If you read the Jewish perversions of the laws of Moses, that does not mean that the law, as it is given in the Old Testament, is all wrong. 
or that the Jews are ever right concerning anything they say about Moses. So, because the laws of Moses are repeated in the Talmud, does that mean that they shouldn't be in the Bible? But this is also psychobabble. The reason why we believe two seed line is found throughout Scripture and also from history as Scripture itself informs us that we shall know men by their fruits. Weissman's appeal to psychology without any actual substantiation for his claims is a weak appeal to an absolutely irrelevant and, because it's so relative, as you said, unstable authority. Psychology is subjective. It can be used to make practically any interpretation leading to some desirable conclusion look as if it was concocted. It can be used to discredit anything. Now we're going to, um, unless you have something to say, we're going to continue under the next subtitle in Weissman's chapter, Elements of the Seed Line Doctrine. Yeah, all I was going to say is uh, I think he left that last bit about not believing in afterlife right at the end of the book. He really should have put that right at the front. Uh, then people would have seen it straight away. But but it was very sneaky there. Well, yeah, right. I mean, it's possible that a lot of people picked up Weissman's book and only read chapter four or chapters three and four, which is where all the meat of his scriptural arguments are. And, and they all fail when they're really examined. But that's where all the meat is in his scriptural arguments. So maybe they skip chapters five and six. But in chapter four, and, and we proved this, it's very clear that Weissman was not a Christian. When he went out and said that the scripture was only um, following and, and adopting pagan Babylonian and Persian dualism, right there, he's not a Christian. Because that means that Christ really wasn't telling truth that the apostles really weren't writing the truth. They were only following pagan dualism. That's not Christian. That belief isn't Christian, but that's what Weissman professed with his own mouth. We either believe that the that, that Yahshua Christ is the revelation of the truth of God and the call to reconcile the children of Israel to God, as the prophets said that he would be, or we believe that Christ is a pagan following dualism and we are not Christians because that's not what Christ or the prophets said that they were or said that he was. So Weissman's not a Christian. He's just a Jew. And this entire book and probably all of his books are designed to corrupt Christian identity and infuse it with Judaism. And, and to make it no more truthful or effective than any of the denominational churches. That this is compromise identity that we've been complaining about for years. And, and when we look at the source for it, well, all of these other people that we've been disputing with for years, Ted Weiland, Stephen Jones, James Brueggemann, and, and on and on, that they were followers of Charles Weissman. Even Mark Downey, 
liked and respected Weissman and read his books. I had read two of Weissman's books early, very early in my identity studies. And I never shared them. I, I don't know why. I, I shared a lot of books over the years with, with other people. I never shared his books. And they never really appealed to me that much. And that was The um, Origin of Race and Civilization and Who is Isari Dam? And of course, he doesn't really understand that. So I never really shared his books. And I never really even kept them, I don't think. I think maybe I read borrowed copies. I never even had my own copies of his books. I wish I'd have read this one early on because I would have understood to a much greater degree why so many people don't accept 2C line because they were all followers of Weissman and they fell for all this deceit and treachery because Weissman's not even a Christian. Okay. Now Weissman continues under another subtitle. Elements of the Seedline Doctrine. The first paragraph. The Satanic Seedline Doctrine has an appeal, or seems right, because many of the basic elements which make it up exist in Scripture. The concept of Seedline, as stated, exists throughout the Bible. The concept of Satanic or that which is evil or in opposition to God, is certainly scriptural. Satanic persons, those who hate and are against God, are also quite prevalent in scripture. And I would say that this does not merely seem right. It is right because it is the entire theme of the Bible, which is evident from Genesis chapter 2 all the way to the very end of the revelation of Yahshua Christ. Weissman evidently knows most of this but denies it simply because he does not want to believe it. He even throws Christ under the bus in order to deny this. He throws Christ under the bus by saying that Christ was only teaching Persian and Babylonian dualism, or that Christ was only slandering. And basically, that's what he accused him of, slandering his adversaries by calling them serpents and the offspring of vipers, a, a phrase which Weissman never even took the time to understand. Because when you call somebody the, a, a son of a bitch, you're not calling the person a bitch, you're calling his mother a bitch. When Christ says to his, to his adversaries that they are the genema, the offspring or generation of vipers, He's not calling them alone vipers. He's calling their parents vipers. So is Jesus just a slanderer? Or was he speaking an, an allegoric but biblical truth? Allegoric because they're not literal vipers. But it's biblically true that they descended from those serpents. Back there in, in Revelation chapter 12, where it was speaking of the past, and they were there in Genesis chapter 3. So was Christ speaking truth, or was he just calling names? Weissman demotes him to a name caller. So, at the top of page 52, because in the balance of this chapter, he will admit that most of our profession is true. 
while continuing to deny parts of it so that he does not have to accept the truth. So at the top of page 52, he asks, but what about a satanic seed line? In other words, he's saying that there are satanic people and he's saying that there are seed line. There is a seed line or there are seed lines, but he doesn't, he's denying a satanic seed line. But what about a satanic seed line? The existence of such a thing is also in scripture. So here he's coming real close to what we believe, but he still denies it. He says, the Amalekites were an ungodly people who were always against God's chosen people. Thus, God said that he will have war with Amalek from generation to generation, citing Exodus chapter 17. The seven Canaanite nations were so contrary to God that he told Israel to eliminate every last man, woman, and child, citing Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 17. And I'll probably have a digression there, right? Thus, as a race, these nations were satanic without any redeeming qualities. The Edomites also constituted a satanic seed line, as they were always ungodly and against God's people. Wow. Uh, okay, I, I, I have some notes here, but I, I, it's probably, my answer is going to be a, a lot longer than these notes. First, I want to get to where Weissman said the seven Canaanite nations, citing Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 17. <clears throat> but thou shalt, and this is... <clears throat> the instructions of, of Yahweh God to Joshua, but thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites. Now, they are Canaanite nations. They are all listed among the descendants of Canaan in Genesis chapter 10. But then it mentions the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God commanded, commanded thee. And that's actually only six nations, but the Perizzites aren't Canaanites. The Perizzites are not listed with the descendants of Canaan in Genesis chapter 10. Weissman just superficially took it for granted that these are all Canaanite nations, where the truth is that they are all living in the nation of, in, in, the nation, in, in the land of Canaan, but they're not all Canaanites. And in Genesis chapter 15, the Bible is more specific about the nations that inhabited the land of Canaan, where it listed those six, but it also listed Kenites and Kenizzites and Cadmonites and Rephaim. It didn't list the Hivites. The Hivites and the Perizzites are not listed as, well, the Hivite is, I'm sorry, but the Perizzites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Kenites, and the Rephaim are not Canaanites. They are simply inhabitants of Canaan. 
So, and, and the point of pointing this out is that Weissman does not explain why any of these groups were wicked and were satanic, except that they were ungodly. There were ungodly Israelites, ungodly meaning impious. There were ungodly Israelites all through time. But were they ever called satanic? Or were they not offered a chance of repentance and reconciliation? Which is it? It's one or the other. They were never considered to be satanic, and they were never told that they would all be destroyed simply because they were impious. Therefore, there has to be some other reason why these nations were satanic. So here Weissman admits an important aspect of two seed line, where without elaboration, he admits that Yahweh God wanted to see every last man, woman, and child of an entire race of people destroyed on at least several occasions because it was satanic. But why is that? Why would not one of Esau's progeny be redeemable? Or one of the progeny of Canaan? Weissman cited Deuteronomy chapter 20 while ignoring Genesis chapters 14 and 15. Therefore, he never explained or eluded having to explain the presence in Canaan of the Rephaim giants, which were also said to have been Nephilim or fallen ones in Numbers chapter 13, I think. He also failed to explain the presence of Kenites, which he lied about in chapter 4 of this book, or of several other races which did not descend from Noah, including the Zuzines or roving creatures that are in Genesis chapter 14. Since Weissman never mentioned them, he did not even have to consider from whence they came and the consequences of them being mingled with the Canaanites. This alone explains why Yahweh God wanted all of the Canaanites completely destroyed, because they were all mingled with the Nephilim, the Kenites, and their abominations, and that is the so-called seed of the serpent, which Weissman also denies. So he's admitting that these races are satanic, but he's not looking for a true explanation as to why. But just the fact that they were ungodly is not reason enough. Yeah, he doesn't explain. What does he mean, ungodly? He would need to explain that. Uh, and also, um, it breaks the connection that if, they, if our ancestors didn't wipe all these out, that later on we would, you know, be under their yoke essentially how we are now that they've essentially taken completely over our countries with their banks and we're living under them because of this this event like three thousand years ago it's all connected and when you understand that you really understand the bible and what yahweh was warning us about absolutely that's absolutely true and that's a very good point so finishing the paragraph weissman states Jesus spoke of the tares, or children of the wicked, who were contrasted with the good seed. The tares are apparently a satanic group of people. 
So Weissman makes a reference to the parable of the wheat and the tares. But once again, he mentions them without elaboration. Perhaps he took for granted the notion that tares were only tares because they were followers of the devil. And he tried to say that earlier, that the Jews who opposed Christ were devils only because they were followers of the devil, rather than having been planted by the devil. <clears throat> so let's read the parable. And then we will discuss the explanation of the parable from Matthew chapter 13. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then has it tares? He said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou, or do you wish, that we go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest, while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now, after this, Christ gave two other short parables. And Matthew wrote, in summary, that all these things spoke Jesus unto the multitude in parables. And without a parable spoke he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which had been kept secret from the foundation of the world. But then his apostles were troubled by the parable of the wheat and the tares. And later they had, they had to ask him about it. So we read further on in the chapter, from verse 36, Then Jesus sent the multitude away, and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, a lot of um, mainstream Christians think that the good seed is sowed with the gospel. And the parable isn't actually understood unless you understand that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. That he sold, sowed the good seed when he created the Adamic race. This is what was not fully revealed in Genesis chapter 3. As Matthew had explained, that Christ had declared, I will utter things which have been kept secret. Christ had fulfilled the declaration, I should say, that I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. That assures that the things he referred to had actually transpired at the beginning of the world, not at the dispensation of the gospel. If these things were kept secret, from the foundation of the world, then they must have represented events which transpired at the beginning of the world. Otherwise, why would, how could they be kept secret from the foundation of the world? How could that be? The enemies of God among the wheat were actually sown by the devil. That same devil from Revelation chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 3. They were non-Adamic infiltrators among the people, just as the Apostle Jude had explained. For there were certain men crept in unawares. How could they creep in unawares if they came from God? Who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. In other words, they were ordained to condemnation right from the beginning. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The Judeans were not all Israelites, as Weissman insisted. Weissman also insisted in chapters 3 and 4 of this book that all of the Judeans that Christ had disputed with were Israelites. But that's not true. Many of them did indeed descend from those same Canaanites and Edomites, whom Weissman himself admitted here were doomed. We have proven this from the epistles of Paul of Tarsus, from the words of Christ, and from the pages of Flavius Josephus and Strabo of Cappadocia, Strabo's geography. As Christ also said in Matthew chapter 15, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. So there were races of men in Judea who were not planted by Yahweh God, meaning that they were not Israelites, and that they were planted by the devil. Their origin was with the devil, not their belief, as they professed a belief in God. And as Christ also indicated, that they would also profess a belief in him, just like Charles Weissman professes a belief in Christ while denying that Christ was speaking the truth.
Weissman is one of those, get away from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. <laughs> An infiltrator, just like so those Bill, um, ancient infiltrators. What? Sorry. I'm sorry, I'm on satellite because my phone connection gave me a hard time yesterday. I don't know why. So I'm on satellite today. I never switch back. So there's a little lag, and that's why you step on me. When I switched to satellite yesterday during the program, the pre-recorded program, I stepped on Michael Hill and Ike Baker a few times, or they stepped on me, and it was because of the satellite lag. It's terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, so Christ's gospel was the first time he truly revealed, you know, everything. And, you know, though people in the past, you know, maybe Adam and Eve and Noah kind of had an idea that there were, you know, two seed line and all that, Christ truly explained it in a much, much more clarity. And especially the revelation where he reveals his Yahweh's plan from beginning to ending. Absolutely. Would that be true? Absolutely. That's why we have a book from Christ called the Revelation. That's why. And, and that's how here in Matthew chapter 13, he revealed things kept secret from the foundation of the world. You cannot say that the good seed are sown with the gospel or, or that the wicked are those who rejected and, and followed the devil. You can't say that because... Here, he's not talking about the gospel. He's talking about something which was kept secret from the foundation of the world. Throughout the entire Old Testament, the children of Israel were told to destroy entirely certain nations that they failed to destroy. And the entire race, man, woman, and children, had to be exterminated. But they weren't told exactly why. God never wanted us to convert them. He still doesn't want us to convert them. Christ identifies them as tares who will be here until the end. And then they will be destroyed at a time of his choosing. That's two seed line in Matthew chapter 13. That's all we need to prove two seed line. But Revelation chapter 12 with Genesis chapter 3, understanding Genesis 3 through the revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 12, then we put the whole story together, and only then. The stumbling block is Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, and we've, that's the biggest stumbling block. It's only a single witness that Cain is Adam's son, but it's a false witness. And we've demonstrated that the Hebrew of the verse is corrupted, and it was corrupted at an early time, even before the Septuagint was translated. If Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 was not corrupted, maybe these things couldn't have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Even the sins of man, God works out to his advantage all the time. There's all sorts of proof of that in scripture. David sinned and took um, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and, and Uriah was killed in battle, and David sinned. He basically 
arranged that. So he was Uriah's murderer and took the his wife as his own. So the first child born of that union had died as part of David's punishment. The second one became Solomon, king over Israel, David's appointed, David's appointed heir. And that was the will of God. So Yahweh took um, David's sin and it became something that worked within his will. And it was what he wanted, but it was David's sin. He takes our sins and uses them to, for his good and his advantage all the time. And the entire story of the Old Testament is that the word of God will be fulfilled one way or another. And, and the opposition of men and, and the ignorance of men, because these things were never revealed to them, are not a factor. The word of God is going to be fulfilled in spite of the opposition of men and in spite of the ignorance of men. And that's true even when God himself keeps men willfully ignorant. And so it was then and so even today that even in spite of the fact that most white Christians are absolutely oblivious to the truth of 2C line and the racial truths of scripture, the will of God is still going to be fulfilled. And all these things are, you know, to correct us and to, you know, improve us. So, and the hope that we'll learn our lesson and uh, also the hope that people will read from these characters in the Bible and see the mistakes and the consequences and choose not to make those same mistakes and obey the Ten Commandments and follow Yahweh. Absolutely. But that entire dimension of Scripture, because of um, deceivers such as Charles Weissman, there are many identity Christians who do not understand it. That entire dimension of Scripture is still a mystery to all these identity Christians who followed after Charles Weisman. They still don't get it. They might understand the need to keep the commandments because God, things work to God's advantage even in their ignorance. They might understand it's evil to race mix, but they don't really know why. Well, once again, thank you for being here. No worries. Thanks for having me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not the God of all the evil wise men out there. Or the tares. Praise Yahweh. Yeah. <laughs> and good night.